Welcome to Brandon Avat. Uh, today we have uh, a really unusual guest um, because we share a name. So we have uh, Mark Oppenheimer, uh, who is um, someone whose work I've been following for a very long time, very talented writer. He uh, also had the balls to sign the uh, Harper's Letter, uh, endorsing uh, free speech. And uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, so Mark has a background um, in, he was at Yale. He used to write the beliefs column for the New York Times. Uh, he runs one of the most fabulous uh, podcasts in the world called Unorthodox. Um, and um, we are really delighted to have him on the show. So Mark, would you like to th- start with a, uh, with a little story? Look, I'll start with this. I write, I'm a senior editor. Um, at, among other things, I'm a senior editor at Tablet Magazine, which is a, a Jewish uh, arts and culture publication. Uh, it's on the web at tabletmag.com. And they're the ones who sponsor the podcast. I'm so proud to host unorthodox. A number of years ago, I wrote a piece for Tablet. Back then, it was called Next Book. It was at nextbook.org, but I think the archives have ported over to Tablet. And I wanted to go interview um, American white supremacists or neo-Nazis. No, no, no. The way I phrased it was I wanted to interview Holocaust deniers. And I forget how I came to these two, but one was named Mark Weber. He runs something called the Institute for Historical Review, which is a major Holocaust denial publishing house. I mean, it's major within the small world. And, and small print run of Holocaust denial publishing. It's not major, major, but it's major in that little, small, twisted little world. And then another guy was um, Bradley, I think it was Bradley Smith, who was um, somewhat famous in the, in, in the 80s, I think. He took out ads in campus publications, offering lots of money to anyone who could prove that somebody had ever died in a gas chamber or something. He was, he was a provocateur, a, campus prov- a Holocaust denial campus provocateur. And Mark Weber lived in greater Los Angeles in Southern California. And Bradley, again, I want to say Smith, but we can check. This is what Google is for, um, lived right across the border in Mexico. And so I realized if I got a plane ticket to LA, I could interview two of the most notorious Holocaust deniers uh, currently practicing uh, their trade in America. And I did, and I wrote a four-part piece. Um, I think it's the headlines, The Denial Twist. You can all go look it up. In which I basically interviewed both of them. I went out to Southern California and spent you know, a few hours with one and a few hours with the other. And um, of course, it had all these amazing twists and turns, which are that Bradley uh, had an ex-wife or common-law wife, I don't know if they were ever formally married, who was, of course, Jewish. And Mark Weber's sister had converted to Judaism. And like these people were completely like surrounded by Yids wherever they, wherever they looked and had like pretty good relations. You know, again, like one of them had been married to one, the other one, well, I think his sister and he had some tensions between them. But, um, you know, unsurprisingly, right, that unsurprisingly the flip side of, of obsession with Jews is a kind of like obsession with Jews, like that these aren't people who don't care about Jews. These are actually people who care deeply about Jews. The English novelist Howard Jacobson has a great piece in which he talks about the sad plight of the Holocaust denier who's always sitting in his library surrounded by the Talmud and Torah and, you know, works of Holocaust history, who's basically made a life of scholarship about um, gas chambers and and Talmud and Maimonides in his twisted desire to prove that the Jews are the root of all evil. He knows Judaism better than most completely secularized Jews do, right? So that is one of the irony about really committed anti-Semites is they're so interested in Jews. Um, and so I wrote this piece and it ran and um, this was pre-Twitter and you know we might've gotten some mail, but certainly if it ran today, we would've gotten a lot of abuse for giving a, a platform to these Holocaust deniers. And my piece was, 
I'm sure there was some snark in it. I think it was probably clear that I'm not a Holocaust denier and I thought these men were wrong, but it gave a long, long, it gave a lot of space to them. Um, much as Tablet recently ran a long interview with Kevin MacDonald, who's this psychologist who has all sorts of Jewish genetic theories that are really troubling and offensive. And, you know, my view about this stuff, my interest in free speech as a journalist is always that the job of the journalist is to tell people stuff they want to know, right? It's very basic. It's very like, this is, this is a privilege. You know, a lot of people have to work in backbreaking labor in the mines. A lot of people are waiting tables for minimum wage. A lot of people are unemployed. And here I get to uh, get up in the morning and call people and ask intrusive questions. And sometimes I get to take a plane to meet them and sit and have conversation. That to me is this, and then I, and then the only ask is that I, in a fair, um, conscientious way, report back to other people about it because those other people are waiting tables or working in mines or farming or working as accountants or doing all sorts of meaningful labor, but they don't get to do the thing I do, which is have these conversations. So my job, if I go to the scene of something or interview someone, is to tell them the thing they want to know. And a lot of people want to know what's going on in the heads of Holocaust deniers, racists, bigots, um, you know, of the right and the left, Fidel Castro apologists, you name it, right? Chavez apologists. And, you know, the New York Times ran a piece, I want to say three, four years ago, sometime right after Trump was elected, in which they interviewed somebody who was, I think he was a white nationalist. I don't remember the piece terribly well, but he was, he was pretty racist. He wasn't just right winger. He was definitely over the line into white nationalist, white supremacist, but he was like this kind of average everyday schmo who led a normal life and coached Little League and had a wife and family and probably had some people of color who were his friends, but he had these horrible beliefs. And the Times ran the story straight, just like, here he is, without any judgment, just here's a look inside this person's life. And there was all this criticism. How dare you give him a platform? How dare you don't signal your disapproval in the prose? And I thought, wait a second, this was a terrific piece because the job is to go and report back to people about the way we live now, about life. And, um, you know, th that doesn't necessarily imply one position or another when it comes to, you know, some of the things that are illegal in some parts of the world, you know, hate speech, Holocaust denial, et cetera. Um, and I'm happy to talk about those things. But when I hear free speech, I think about the fact that I went out there and I sat with Holocaust deniers and I wasn't, you know, I mean, I will sometimes talk to people who talk about how traumatic it is to have to encounter certain views and say, look, I'm a Jewish guy who literally went and sat at like a burrito place with America's leading Holocaust denier. Um, and I, I emerged unscathed. I mean, it was, it was unpleasant. And obviously I signed up for this work, not everyone does. But if you have the privilege of living in a liberal democracy where mostly you're free from uh, violence and where there aren't warring factions who might pull you in, who might turn your children into child soldiers. I mean, when you think of the grand scheme of things, I'm lucky enough that I can, that those of us in America right now, even in these tough times, have, should be, have a capacious enough sensibility to say, we would prefer to know stuff rather than to be protected from it. So that's, that's what I think about. So I think it's a, it's a great story, um, and and you've got all the elements of of the free speech debate, right? So you've got an unpleasant character um, producing an unpleasant feeling inside you, and people who are very intrigued 
by what's going on inside his head. You've got people who are very offended by it and people are just interested and you're making the decision to, to platform, not necessarily him, but his story. Um, and then there's this debate, you know? Um, so I, I thought that one of the very interesting words you used was unpleasant. Um, so when you were sitting there, you felt it was unpleasant and yet it served some other good. So the question is, playing devil's advocate for a moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, the question is, is there an amount of unpleasantness associated with airing someone's views who's an objectionable person? Is there an amount of unpleasantness that would justify not airing those views? I suppose it's logically possible, but as one of my university professors always said, you know, reality is that which we're not at liberty to ignore. <laughs> Right. So, you know, um, you can uh, you can get into your ready player one, you know, chair and and go off into the matrix to, to mix my sci fi movie metaphors um, and not and not deal. I mean, you can avoid unpleasantness in all sorts of ways. You can, in fact, construct your um, consumption of news, especially today more than ever. And the channels that you absorb to and, 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 and look at to. Um, to make it maximally pleasant. And in fact, a lot of people on the left and the right do that. Um, I have relatives who watch Fox News. I was just watching Fox News for a piece I'm doing. I just had to watch three hours of Fox News in the morning. And it's, you know, leaving aside the fact that um, the ads are all totally insipid, you know, for, for sort of, you know, things like the pillow that will change your sleep habits forever. And um, it's, it's horrible to see the kind of propagandistic level of it and, and also the sort of endless repetition of cliches, the way that you could really feel the most crude propaganda being aimed at you like a fire hose. Um, so I, have, I construct my life to avoid certain kinds of unpleasantness, but certainly if you think the free press matters, if you want there to be, if, you know, if journalism is the first draft of history, you really want there to be a record of stuff, including the white supremacists. I mean, I think about this when I read obituaries which clean up the lives of the person who died. And this is something even a lot of free speech enthusiasts are sort of okay with. You know, why do we have to speak ill of the dead? Do you have to mention Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme? You know, um, you know or do you have to mention that early you know, conviction for whatever he, he led or she led such a noble life after that? And I think, well, yes, because actually we don't want facts lost to history. Actually, like this is the job. The job is record stuff because people, um, and part of it is humility. I, I'm, I'm not the best judge of where to draw these lines. I'd, far, I'd much rather crowdsource it to my audience and let them decide if they want to read an article or not. I mean, there's no way out of the fact that when people ask me not to share something or not to interview someone or not to give a platform to somebody or to censor something um, or to, to censor out the particular racial epithet that was used, um, as the times will do. They will say so-and-so, you know, re referred to so-and-so with, a, with a, an offensive slur. Um, that is a form of gatekeeping. That's a form of paternalism and gatekeeping that I, am, I find really, really problematic. I think you point out something quite essential, which is that there is a cost um, when you start silencing speech, that you may be able to get the benefit of avoiding unpleasant circumstances, but the cost is that um, reality is going to come for you. And if you put your head in the sand um, when dangerous people are expressing their views, um, you know, they may gain an enormous amount of power. There's also a cachet they can gain in by saying, look, 
you know, the reason why these Jews um, don't, want to, don't want us to sort of talk about why the Holocaust didn't happen is because they've got something to hide and okay. they control the media and they're not going to allow us to tell our stories. And, you know, it's because there's this sort of grand conspiracy. If you say, look, we're going to, uh, we're going to provide you this platform and we can hear your views and we can interrogate them and uh, we can show that you're wrong. Um, there's an enormous amount of power in that. You know, Alan Dershowitz had this view where he says, you know, you've got the tension about giving this sort of hate monger a platform um, and also not wanting to let them use the denial of the platform against you. So he said, if you want to debate the Holocaust, let's do it. But I want something else um, on the debate um, stage as well, which is, is the moon made of green cheese? Because the questions are equally ridiculous. Um, and that's a nice way of kind of making fun of these guys who hold insane positions and hateful positions. Um, and, and also having some level of trust in, in other human beings that we're not children. We are able to assess um, truth from falsehood. You know, it might take a little bit of time. It might be the case that, um, you know, gossip and lies are able to run around the world much quicker than, you know, truth is able to tie up its shoes, but eventually truth catches up. Um, and as you say, maybe journalists are the first draft of history, but they're not the final draft of history. Um, and that's why there's a huge value in allowing people to sort of express their ideas, even if they are enormously offensive, because we can counter dialogue. And also we want to be able to learn from our history. If we start censoring things and, you know, um, pretending that bad things haven't happened in the past, well, they'll, they'll come and get us again. The sense of what's offensive also changes very, very quickly. So, you know, right now, um, People think it's offensive to, um, you know, question the gender identity of a trans person, uh, which is an important um, innovation, but one that was unheard of when I was a child. Um, Ten years ago, it was much more difficult in America anyway, in the United States, to question the policies of the Israeli government. Um, Ten years before that, right after 9-11, it was nearly impossible to question um, the nobility of the American military. Um, and, and, you know, so people who, um, who want to uh, downplay the threat of cancel culture, of uh, the silencing of voices, will point to the fact that the most significant silencings in, in my lifetime anyway, really did come right after 9-11, when uh, people who wanted to speak out against President Bush or against the military, or God forbid, make fun of anyone or satirize anyone or show disrespect to people in uniform, could get canceled very quickly. I mean, if you look at what happened to the Dixie Chicks, um, if you look at the flack that Bill Maher took for saying that the people who flew planes into the towers, whatever you want to call them, they weren't cowards. That was the wrong term. Um, so, and that, those were people whose jobs were really... Um, I mean, you, you really would have been fired from a lot of mild-mannered office, mid-level management office jobs if you would come across as a peacenik right after the towers fell. Um, so it is true, you know, and so that was real cancellation from the right of what was acceptable to say. In, in the United States, I now feel there's much more pressure coming from the left, at least if you're in, um, if you're in journalism or media culture. Um, the people controlling what's permissible to say or not are much more left-wingers. Um, but so there's also this contingency to what we even find offensive or acceptable that is so time-bound. So if we have any humility, if we have any sense of the big picture, we have to understand that it's better to just say stuff and have it out there. And certainly if it's true, it's better to report stuff that's true and meet people who have stuff to say and are changing the dialogue um, than to pretend they don't exist. Um, because, you know, hist as you say, history, history will catch up with us pretty quickly, within a decade. 
So I, I'm quite curious about, you know, you talk about reporting what's true. Um, by the way, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate throughout yeah. this, but we're, we're By the way, this drives, this drives some of my fellow liberals insane that I talk about true, that I use the word true. I right. had somebody who's a therapist recently say to me, because I was talking, I won, for this book I'm working on about the synagogue shootings in Pittsburgh, I was asking for some financial records. I mean, real reporting stuff. You know, is this money going, is this sort of money that's supposed to pay for therapists being used? How's it being used? And this person I was interviewing was very agitated and said, you know, why are you doing this? I said, well, I, just because my job is to say true stuff. Meaning I'm not trying to take you down. I'm, I just tried to report true stuff. And, and this person said, well, coming from the therapeutic community, I, uh, that's really offensive. We wouldn't even use the word true. Everyone has their own truth. Like it was a trigger for her to say true was this kind of reactionary move. <laughs> But sorry, maybe that's not where you're going. No, I, I think it's a very interesting point. Um, so this is something philosophers care a lot about is how we define truth. Right. Um, and Mark and I are both, well, other Mark and I are both philosophers. Um, and there's kind of been this split and it's very much pol a politically aligned split. Um, so you get postmodernists who think that truth is defined in a way that is constructed, right? So you and the people around you construct the, the truth together. Right. And, you know, if other people disagree with you, well, then they just don't get your truth. It's your truth. Um, whereas analytic philosophers traditionally think there is a truth with a capital T and that's all there is. And I think that continental view, that postmodern post leftist view has infiltrated a lot of academia. So if you think about the way that history is understood. History, you know, the, the way history is taught now is that there isn't a truth with a capital T. There is just constructions of truth. I don't know though. I mean, I, look, I think that's an interesting language game and I think it's worth playing in about your third year of grad school. But, you know, what's interesting is those same leftists are, and again, these I'm counting, often, often I'd count myself in that group and I'm counting some of my favorite people. Um, they're not playing fancy language games with climate change. <laughs> Right. They're not, playing, they're not playing fancy language games with whether or not George Floyd you know, was killed or whether he's dead. They might sometimes play those games with whether Biggie and Tupac are alive and living on an island in the Caribbean. But, you know, when the stakes are high, all of a sudden reality really does reassert itself into their language games. So, of course, people have different perspectives. Of course, people um, interpret things differently. Of course, people's own, you know, mental construct of them, of, of how things are remembered and 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 process it can be radically different. And of course, memory is extremely selective and just often wrong. I mean, just often wrong, right? Um, I recently, no, not recently, about 10 years ago when I was writing this memoir about high school debate called Weisenheimer, um, I got in touch with someone from my old high school debate world and was, I was checking my memories. Like, remember that tournament in British Columbia? And she said, oh yeah, and we had, and some of our memories were the same. And, you know, um, I, I think, you know, <laughs> there may have been alcohol involved. There may have been underage drinking involved. So that might account for some of this. But, but some of our memories lined up perfectly. And then, and then as we were getting off the phone or, you know, whatever, um, she said something like, yeah, and I just remember that after all that went down, you sat down at the piano in the hotel bar and just like played music until we'd rung in the new year. It was like December 31st and you were the one at the, at the piano uh, just like singing old show tunes until like three in the morning, 1992, January 1st, 1992. Now the problem with this of course is I can't play piano. 
Like not even a little bit. Like I, I, I'm a tone deaf, non-musical human being. And so this was completely fabricated in her mind. And yet she'd been correct about everything, like on, ever, or shall I say on every other point, our memories had aligned with, in a way that gave you great confidence. So look, of course, reporting is provisional and contingent and we have to run corrections and stuff. But I actually don't think that the idea of a, you know, a reasonable consensus around certain material facts is so far gone or so lost to us. I think that's an argument that's deployed when people don't like the political conclusions they'd have to draw from certain kinds of fact, right? So you could certainly imagine right-wingers saying, well, I don't know, I don't know if, the, if the, the police are killing black men. I mean, we all have different truths, <laughs> you know, but I don't know. Um, that strikes me as a, you know, I don't know. I don't deal with too many people who really don't believe in truth. They, but there are people who definitely see the use of the word as a, um, as a, a political signal, but I don't. And I don't think journalists should. So you recently signed the, the Harper's letter alongside a number of other very uh, eminent writers and thinkers. Um, that made news in South Africa? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, I mean, interesting thing You guys about- need your own news. <laughs> like you, you sign a letter do. you sign an email in new haven and it goes to south africa sorry go ahead yeah i mean i, I have to say south africa we are at least for for entertaining news we, we do all right uh, yeah yeah we have our, our own interesting controversies not like but, you guys haven't been in the news to be fair to south africa yeah yeah and actually there's this interesting dialogue in a way between in our cultural norms so if you think about this uh, move to take down statues uh, in the mm-hmm. states um, that really starts in South Africa. It starts at um, my old alma mater at the University of Cape Town, where they took down a statue of Cecil John Rhodes. Um, uh-huh. And we've sort of also imbibed a lot of uh, American critical race theory. So there's this conversation that happens between our countries, which is interesting. And interesting. I think, uh, unsurprising. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what is interesting to my mind was the reaction to the letter. And I, I'm kind of interested to know, first of all, I think someone immediately said, I want to unsign it. And I didn't realize that so-and-so would have signed it. And, right. and I can't be associated with them. And right. I'm horrified. Um, and, and I also wonder about how a letter like that is constructed. So, I mean, the force of the letter really is to say there's a concern that cancel culture is stopping a lot of open dialogue. And right. that if we're going to produce work as journalists and writers, we need to be able to do so without fear. Uh, as you point out, cultural mores shift very rapidly. Um, and you could say something today that's totally banal and in three years time will be seen as the most sinister thing possible. Uh, yep. I mean, if you think about, as you mentioned earlier, um, talking about biological sex, um, you yep. know, something that was basically banal five years ago, um, you know, and you have someone like JK Rowling, uh, who's the most beloved children's author of all time, um, you know, the best selling living author, and that she can be vilified by mainstream channels because she doesn't utter the view that there's anything wrong with being trans. She just says, I'm concerned about people being fired um, for believing in something like biological sex. Right. I mean, so let me say a few things about the Harper's letter and, and um, people should go read it. It's at harpers.org. It's not hard to find. Um, it's something like a letter concerning free speech. First of all, how it's constructed. Um, there was, there was a group of several people who wrote it collectively. I think I wasn't part of the process at all. I know that the writer Thomas Chatterton Williams, who is an American writer, um, he's black. He lives in France now with his wife. Um, a, a great writer and uh, a really powerful thinker was one of the writers. I think that, um, 
Uh, I think Mark Lilla, who teaches at Columbia University, was another one. Paul Berman may have been involved. I mean, there was a group of writers who, who wrote it um, and then circulated it and got signatures. And I said, I read it and I said, I agree with all that. And, you know, um, it was really fascinating because the text of the letter is the kind of thing that is easy to assent to. <laughs> And some people were angry about it because they felt that it was disingenuous and they felt, well, really, this text isn't about the text. It's about the subtext. And all I can say for, you know, something like 150 to 200 people signed it is for some people, it might have been about the subtext. But for a lot of us, I think it was about the text. And I've only talked to four or five other signers. It's not like we all have a, a secret. You know, the, the Jewish world conspiracy did not offer to lend us their country house to meet a, around a table and like talk about the letter. I mean, it, we're all, it's COVID. We're, so I've talked to four or five other signers. Um, and um, the, for me, so all I can say is for me, there was no subtext, there was text, which was there's a, a lot of uh, fear right now about um, being attacked for expressing views. And it is definitely affecting um, how journalists and writers and thinkers and intellectuals do their job. Everyone is scared. And the people, some of the people have attacked me um, when I pushed them on it, I mean, I had some phone calls with people who were angry that I'd signed the letter. I said, well, aren't you scared? And then after hemming and hawing, they would say, well, yes, they are. I mean, they're all scared. They're all scared that a Twitter mob will come for them and then we'll get to their editors and their editors will uh, fire them or, or just make their lives unpleasant. Keep in mind that a lot of writers, I would say the vast majority of working writers are freelancers. So it's not even a matter of if you express some sort of view, like let's say somebody expressed a view about J.K. Rowling that was vaguely supportive and Rowling had expressed a view of this woman who was fired for um, some sort of, I haven't followed it closely, so I'll say allegedly, just because I don't know the case well, anti-trans gesture. You could be three or four removes. You could support the person who supported the person who supported J.K. Rowling, who supported this other person. And if a Twitter mob attacks you and says you are anti-trans, um, what happens isn't that you're fired from anything necessarily, it's that you might not get work. Because if an editor assigns, an editor might, Google, when you pitch a story, an editor might Google you and say, Ugh, this person, I don't really know the whole story. I don't have time to get to the bottom of it before lunch, but seems like this person might be a bigot, so I'm not going to sign it. So what happens when your reputation gets damaged and you're a freelancer is people just don't give you one-off assignments, but that's your livelihood. So there is this tremendous, the mechanism is very easy to see. It's not about being disinvited from cool parties or even being fired from a secure full-time job, which very few writers have. It's just that if you're in dishumor, um, you won't get work and you won't get a full-time job you might apply for next year. And that's what scares people. So it is kind of McCarthyite in that way. People misunderstand McCarthyism or red scares or, or blackballing to think that it's always about government action. That's one of the great misunderstandings, right? Actually, the way these things usually operate, and this was true in East Germany under the Stasi, this is true in, in communist China, is it operates through social, the, the government scares enough people that the social pressures do all the work. So it doesn't really matter where it starts. If you feel that your world starts to fall apart or close in on you or friends don't want to talk to you or don't want to be on a letter with you, then the work is done. So to me, it's almost more important to be on letters with people I do disagree with because that shows that there's still social solidarity around free speech. If you're only willing to be on letters with people who are, um, who are approved, who are kosher, then what's happened is you yourself are part of the blackballing of the people who aren't kosher. And, and, and that's really, um, that's reactionary and, and, and does um, squelch people. I want to say two more things about um, the letter. One of the criticisms that we got was, who cares what, you know, with, with Portland, Oregon 
burning and having riots and stormtroopers being sent in by Trump and with Black Lives Matter, all causes I, I care about and support, I, I, I wanna make clear. People would say with all of that going on, who cares what a bunch of privileged writers have to say? And there's a couple things to say is, one is people who work in the knowledge economy um, are, are especially under Trump are constantly under attack. I mean, there is a sense in which we have privilege. It's a nice job to have and we have some social sway but we actually are in a world where the right is heavily against us and, if, and now the left is kind of against us. So free thought, um, it's not so, such a privileged, secure category. That's number one. Number two, uh, so three things. Number two, uh, it's reasonable for people to care about their own industry, right? Uh, it's true that what's going on in my world, I actually don't think is quite as important as what's going on in the world of policing. But policing is not my industry, and I don't have any stature to say anything new or fresh or meaningful about policing. I actually have a lot of stature and knowledge uh, with which to say something meaningful about the free press and freedom in media and arts and culture. So that's what I'm going to say, because it's my industry. And, and if somebody felt that nannies were being mistreated, I hope that she or he would speak out about what's going on in the nanny industry. And I think that agriculture, farmers have to speak out what's going on in their industry, even though there are other things going on in the news, right? We don't stop all their discourse because we're in the midst of some important social moments. Um, and the third thing I would say is, as a progressive, um, I actually think that cancel culture is really bad for our movement. So one reason I want to speak out about it is precisely because I care about the same things that some of my friends on the left care about. I think their way of getting to it uh, is really, really stupid. I think that creating social disincentives to speak freely and have genuinely candid exchanges um, is, a, is terrible for our movement and fuels right-wing reactionary uh, movements. So part of it is the people who are criticizing me and saying, you know, why would you sign this? Like one reason is because you're doing a really sucky job on the left and uh, creating a really hostile space that people don't want to be part of. So I want to push back a little bit. There's a concern as well that you then cede all control to your political opponents over this issue of free speech, where the only people that are speaking up in favor of free speech are now on the right. Um, and traditionally those were the kind of you know, conservatives who wanted to shut people down, ban books. Um, yeah, I mean, Mark, free... that's happened. I mean, your average young campus leftist thinks of free speech as a, as a right-wing dog whistle, not much as they think of truth as a right-wing dog whistle. They've completely ceded these classical liberal values about freedom, because ultimately that's what it's about, right? It's freedom. I mean, to some extent, it's about also material sustenance, which I think is a precondition for true freedom. But really what we want is to be free, to, be, to, to flourish, you know, as what Aristotle said we want, which is human flourishing, right? I mean, we want to not be scared. We want to uh, feel that we have meaningful work that we can do with integrity. Um, we want to not be worried uh, that an unfortunate injury could ruin us financially. Like we want to be free. And it's pretty hard to argue that um, the current trends on the left with regard to free speech and discourse are promoting freedom. Uh, what they're promoting is a version of, uh, is a particular vision of power. Um, and, uh, and it's a vision of power that is hostile to um, certain freedoms. And I think that's, that's sad and bad for the movement. Yeah, there's a sense in which it seems like free speech was used by the left in a cynical manner, where you say, look, we want to have a free discussion about certain ideas. If you think about, um, think about gay marriage in America, you know, the idea of gay marriage would have been so anathema to so many people because of the way that they were brought up. 
Um, and then you really have this big public discussion about it. And people are persuaded. You know, people sort of say, you know what, maybe marriage is an important institution. Um, people should be free to love each other and have it recognized by the state. And, you know, rather rapidly, then you're able to kind of have this public discussion, which then is concretized in law. And South Africa was, was the fifth country in the world to have gay marriage. You know, I think it's one of the things that is uh, ready to be celebrated about, about South Africa. Um, I'm involved in a constitutional court case at the moment. And we have a situation where someone who was critical about gay marriage, um, after, two years after um, it had been entrenched in our law, um, was then met with hate speech charges. Um, and there's the sense in which you say, but hold on, this was an open discussion that both sides engaged in, in some level of openness. And now that the one side is one, we say, you cannot talk about this anymore. We've won. Yeah. And then that becomes about power uh, as opposed to about free inquiry. And I mean, part of why free speech is so important is because you might actually learn something from your opponents. You know, it's not always going to be the case that you just re-entrench your view. Somebody say, you know what, that's actually a hell of a good idea. And I hadn't thought about that. That's a really good point. I think um, there is a fear on the part of people who want to curtail free speech um, that, uh, that their opponents um, uh, will, first of all, they're, they're afraid that their opponent's power can always rear back to life. And, that, and so in something like free speech with, with gay marriage, it's not enough to win. They have to stamp out pockets of opposition because they're afraid that if you water them, that they will roar back to life and, and undo the law, um, which isn't crazy. I mean, there, there are people uh, in the anti-gay marriage camp who do want to undo the law, but the answer isn't to then um, cease to believe in the First Amendment, uh, to put it in American terms. Um, but yes, the other, the other thing is that uh, I don't think it's interesting or fruitful to go through life fearful, which is why I talk to Holocaust deniers, which is why I'm happy to talk to racists. The third thing is, it's sad that there's this lack of confidence that we can change them. So, um, you know, the most important book I've read in the past few years, one of the best, but, all, but I think I'm pretty comfortable saying the most important um, is Eli Zaslow's book, um, Rising Out of Hatred, uh, which is, uh, he's a reporter for the Washington Post, um, or Saslow, S-A-S-L-O-W. And he wrote this great story about a, um, a white supremacist college student, somebody who really grew up in the neo-Nazi movement, the hardcore neo-Nazi movement. His father had one of the big radio shows or podcasts that like united neo-Nazis. And the son was the kind of prince of the movement and often would guest host on his father's radio show and like was beloved by thousands of neo-Nazis as the next rising star. And he went off for whatever reason, he went off to this small progressive college in Florida called New College, which is a tiny little, um, kind of progressive liberal arts college and, and didn't kept a very low profile. This was kind of pre like the web was there. Actually people could, if they bothered to Google it, they probably would have figured out who he was, but why, why would they? And he kept a very low profile for a year or two. And then it kind of leaked out that who he was and the school couldn't expel him. It was a public university. There's free speech requirements. The state can't, couldn't come after him that way. So he keeps taking classes. Everyone shuns him, except his girlfriend who sticks with him. And that's a very weird part of the story. But also these Jewish students who had started inviting him for Shabbat dinners. And he would come and he would just, you know, I guess sing Shalom Aleichem and say the Kiddush over the wine and have some challah and eat and talk. And he was a very smart guy and very interested in philosophy. And he met these kind of brainy, warm Jews. And within a year or two, he'd completely broken with his father's movement. And, and he now does work attacking uh, or uh, trying to 
counter the the, the harm he caused as a as a neo-Nazi. And I think he's now a graduate student somewhere getting a PhD. His name is Derek Black. And you know, that's obviously an unusual case, but I actually believe that if I encounter someone with horrible views and genuinely have a conversation with them and treat them as a human being, that the odds that I will change that person are actually much greater than the odds that that person will change me. I mean, that person will change me in some ways. I could learn something from them. But the odds that I've actually moved their political convictions are just stronger than that they're going to, because I have confidence in mine. So, but, and, and you do sense on the part of a lot of the left, they don't really have the confidence to do that. They also, and here, I think you're younger than I am, Mark, so I don't mean to go on anti-millennial screed, but there is a fear of actually spending time with people and having, our arguments are seen as toxic. So you, I, you, I mean, I'm, there's a woman I manage in one of my jobs who um, is in her late 20s, and I said, we, you know, and, and just for some work, some sort of office work, I said, well, they're not getting back to your emails, you have to call them. And she was terrified. And she said, well, I don't, I don't make phone calls. How do I do that? I mean, she knew physically how to do it, but she said, well, do you just call and say, this is so-and-so? And I'm asking about, I said, yes, you call, you introduce yourself and you say, here's what I'm calling. Is there a time, is there a time to call? Is there, you know, <laughs> like, should I ask for the man or the woman in the couple? Like she didn't know any protocols of what for me was one of the ways I grew up having conversations. And I do wonder, and you might know better than I, if that's part of what's going on is a, fee, a, a genuine social discomfort with conversation. Or am I just being a grumbling like Gen Xer? I, I think there's something in that. I think that there's a lot to be said for the way that you have a conversation with someone who disagrees with you. I think if you think about how this sort of stuff plays out online, especially on a platform like Twitter, where you've got a very small amount of characters to express your view, it tends to be very blunt. It's, there's a lack of nuance. There's a kind of um, a sense in which you're part of a gladiatorial arena um, where yeah. instead of having a conversation, you've got all these people jeering, waiting for blood, and there are big stakes. Like one of you might lose your job, and maybe the other one who gets to hold up the other person's severed head gets to say, I fight for social justice, and I, I want the guy's job now. You know? And so you've got this very strange situation, people having discussions, as opposed to, to my mind, you know, around a Shabbos table, where you know, I, mean, I grew up sort of debating people and arguing about contentious things. Um, one of my, my dad's proudest moments was when I was about eight. Um, we had a judge in the family and we were talking about the Eruv. So um, for those of you that aren't Orthodox Jews, um, the Eruv is basically a wire that is put up around the community, which allows people to do certain things like, uh, like push prams and carry books. And, you know, the idea is that it's an extension of the synagogue. And I said to the, to the, to on the, the Sabbath, judge, yeah, on the Sabbath. It allows you to do those things on the Sabbath when otherwise you wouldn't be allowed to do them outside your home because it creates an extended home. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So I'm eight years old and I say to the judge, you know, this is, this is bullshit. You know, judge can, the God can see through the wires. Like you're, this, you're not creating a force field. I just don't buy right. it. You're not fooling we, anybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we had this back and forth and eventually he got so exasperated that he said, you know what, Mark, you can fuck off. Um, and he stood up and he stormed off. And this is my dad's proudest moment. He's like, you know, if my little kid can get this judge to be so exasperated. But, you know, the next, the next Shabbos we were there, we were debating, we were discussing. Right. And you're doing it in person. And the other thing about in person as well is that you can see how this other person is dealing with it. You can be emotionally astute. You, you have a relationship that transcends an anonymous online account. The other thing about in person is people are nicer to other people in person. I mean, even, even him saying fuck off is, there's, you know, is less toxic than the things people will say on Twitter, will they, where they will just, um, you know, I always say, 
if you want a good rule for how to behave on social media, just treat people the way you would treat them if they were standing right in front of you. So most people are fundamentally quite decent to people who are right in front of them. I mean, I go months at a time without having anyone cruelly insult me to months, years, maybe to my face in front of me. It always comes online. It always comes or behind my, it comes online or behind my back. And I, we don't, we haven't begun yet to understand why, even without anonymity, even with people's names really out there, many people will feel free to say stuff online that they would be ashamed to say in person. It's so, it's so profound. It's the first time in human history. Because even if you look back to like the pamphleteering of the 18th century, 17th century kind of colonial world, you know, certainly around the time of the American Revolution, the really cruel stuff you said under a pseudonym, <laughs> right? You published your pamphlet anonymously and said it, or you had surrogates spread rumors. It's not that people were kind, but there was at least some sense of shame about it. And we've actually lost that entirely. So I do think that um, there is a loss of, and, and the other thing we've lost is I think a lot of people today, and this may be generational as well, don't have any romance with a good argument. In other words, for me, it's not just a kind of a, a difficulty to endure, for me and a lot of the people I grew up with, including the ones who weren't competitive debaters like me, a good argument was like a lot of fun, like testing your arguments against someone, getting really mad at them, then kind of backing down, apologizing, hugging it out at the end of the night, saying, calling the next day to apologize, learning something, fig getting to know people really through a fight. Um, you know, there's good fighting and bad fighting. And, um, and the romance of like a good fight where you really get to know each other better and there's an intimacy to it is a huge part of who I am. And I, try to explain that sometimes to younger people and they don't, they think that any conflict is inherently toxic, but that's not true. It doesn't have to be true. So the way Jason and I sort of first really cemented our friendship was in a four hour um, car drive to go hiking. And we spent the entire time arguing with each other. And, and we, we've continued to do so for years. We, we disagree about almost everything. And because of that, we love each other. It's so much fun to meet someone. You go, wow, you believe something so utterly nuts. Let's Wait, talk so it What's out. the big disagreement? <laughs> we're, we're, what's the gap between you guys in Outlook? Uh, I, th I think it's, it's almost complete, except on free speech. Um, so we actually both agree very firmly that free speech is important. And so it, it doesn't matter what else we disagree about. Um, because all of that has, has room to be discussed. Got it. What's, the, like, what's a big thing you disagree about? Oh, I mean, interestingly, like, so we recently uh, released a book on lockdown um, uh -huh. and we disagree on the seriousness of COVID, for example. Uh -huh. um, uh -huh. I think it's a lot more serious than Mark does. Um, I think that government has greater justification for lockdown uh -huh. than Mark does. Um, and this is a disagreement we've been having since the beginning of COVID. Right. Um, right. But I think a lot of other people have been having this disagreement and then aligned with the political kind of orientation. And then they become opposite sides in a debate which cannot discuss. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I fundamentally don't, I think that a lot of people operate with a lot more fear. I mean, the right is filled with fear mongering right now. They're afraid of immigrants. They're afraid of socialists. They're afraid of everything. The left is terrified. And, you know, they're afraid that if you say the wrong thing that you've given power to, uh, you know, that, that speech has this, this kind of, uh, magical power to destroy people's souls and, um, you know, raise up Donald Trump and, and uh, you know, make war. And I mean, I have a, actually, I love ideas, but I have a much more humble view of what, um, 
a, of, of what a given conversation can do. And what's more, I think that it's ultimately the principle. Again, it's about freedom. I mean, if you really want to freedom, start with having freedom, right? Like the idea of hate speech laws, which are going to curb freedom to create other people's freedom. I, I've, I'm not into hate speech as a, um, a way of constructing law. If people, someone murders someone, they should go to jail. But the idea that they should get an extra big punishment because of what was going through their mind when they did it, I think is a problem, is a civil liberties problem. Um, and I don't think it's helpful. Um, I think so it's just- like I, I want to push on that. Um, yeah. Okay, so, so both of you pre presented a very good case um, for the virtues of free speech. Um, and, and I mean, it really, it all makes a lot of sense. I think fealty to the truth is very important. I think um, the growth that you can get through discussion is very important. Um, I, I, I think the, the absence of judgment in, in view of shifting mores over time is very important. I agree with all of that. But now let's take it to extreme cases, right? So in South Africa, for example, we have a very racially split society, have had for a very long time. Mm -hmm. um, racially split at the moment more among politicians than everyday South Africans. Mm -hmm. um, and one of, one of uh, one, a government official um, who was, uh, you know, an official, uh, he was an official at the time when he said this, said that white people should be slaughtered uh, the way Hitler slaughtered the Jews and their children should be used as garden fertilizer. Okay, so now when you hear something like that. He really hit all the angles, right? He got the Jews, yeah, no, he, he got the white people, he got the, yeah. Yeah, and I'm giving you a, a shortened version, right? It, it, it was really very lyrical and went on for a while. So question is, should that kind of speech, which is an incitement to violence, should that kind of speech be curbed? That's question one. Question two is, if it should be, in what way should it be? So should it be curbed by the law? So should it be the state that does the curbing or should it be more of a social curbing? But then we, we go into that black blackballing kind of situation that you were discussing. Yeah, I mean, um, let me start with the question of sort of social disapproval, right? I don't mean that everyone has to approve of everything. I, in fact, think we should call out our friends for uh, saying offensive and bigoted things. I think we have an obligation to call them out. What I don't think, uh, but, but I think we always want to bring people back into civil society. We always want to make sure that people have meaningful work. I believe that ex-convicts deserve meaningful work. I believe that people who spied on their own country once they've paid for their crime deserve meaningful work. Like this is a core issue of the left is that people get to have jobs, um, that they, they shouldn't live in the social death of permanent unemployment. So, you know, what, what bothers me is the weaponization of things like employment, which of course in the United States also means health insurance to coerce people into, uh, you know, coming in line with the party line rather than engaging them in, you know, forceful dialogue, calling them out, uh, demanding to know where they get off, making such a stupid claim, asking for evidence. There's, there's good ways to call people out. Um, as to your question, I mean, you know, you know, so I'm an American, right? I grew up with the balance we have, which is that if, um, if it really seems clear that you've issued some sort of uh, fighting words that have incited people to riot or incited people to crime, then you're culpable and you can be held accountable in some way for, for what your words did. But there has to be a pretty direct connection. It can't just be, I think all Jews should be slaughtered. And then you say that in Philadelphia and three weeks later, some Jew is killed in Las Vegas by some white supremacist. And even if that person says, well, I did it because this guy in Philadelphia said such and such three weeks ago, 
the sort of vague notion all Jews should be slaughtered doesn't put you on the hook for every Jew who's everyone who happens to, you know, come across your tweet for the next year, five years, 10 years. I, I'm, I'm, I just think that it just seems, it seems um, ideologically wrong, right? The causation seems off. Like probably that person was going to go and kill a Jew anyway. And maybe this tweet was the, the proximate cause, but do we really know? So I don't know. I think um, there are clearly cases of people, you know, getting a band of followers and saying, let's now march into the synagogue and do, do some bad stuff. Yeah, that would seem to be pretty aligned with the crime. But again, you're talking to an American. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I understand why in Germany they really want to make Holocaust denial illegal. I'm not sure I think they're right or that it works, but emotionally I get why they're there. Did that answer your question or did, did I dodge it? I hope I didn't dodge it. Well, well, I mean, really what I'm trying to get at is, is there anything, is there any form of speech where you feel there should be a sanction? Well, in America, you can sue for libel and slander, right? You can't say untrue things about people. So it has to be the specific person, I think, is what it is. Um, and, there ha and you have to present a specific harm, like I lost income or I lost my reputation. But yeah, crazy people can stand in the middle of Times Square and rant with all sorts of anti-Semitic and racist and conspiracy-minded nonsense and kind of get off okay with it. And that has seemed to work for us. I don't, see the, I don't really see the cost to that, um, in the grand scheme of things in America. I don't see how that's been a bad bargain. Um, I don't know, where's the, what's, well, what's the, what case am I dodging? Tell me. Okay, so I mean, these, the kind of cases I'm thinking about are not American cases, although we could extend them. Okay, so the kind of cases I'm thinking about are, um, so recently in South Africa, we had this interesting debacle. Um, so we have a, a, a pharmacy chain, um, a pharmaceutical chain who released an advert um, on their website, and they had four pictures on, on this advert. There were four pictures and some text um, above each. So the four pictures, two were of black women's hair and two were of white women's hair, and they were advertising shampoo and conditioner. And they were saying, our shampoo and conditioner suits all types of hair, and they labeled above two of the black women's hair. The one was uh, fine, uh, no, sorry, the, the, the black women's hair were were dry, the one was dry, and the other one was, I can't remember all the descriptions. Right. And, and under one of the white women's hair, they said normal hair. The mm. other white woman's hair was dull and flat, but, but the, the fact that the normal hair was attached right. to a white person and the frizzy hair or the, or the dry hair was attached to a black person elicited enormous, uh, enormous anger. Um, and one of the political parties here, the EFF, um, demanded that all of their all of their um, their followers stand outside these click stores, these pharmaceutical stores, and uh, blockade anyone from walking in, and then actively destroy the stores, um, loot and destroy the stores, which then happened over the following days. So there was this call to action um, by the party leader, right. which which resulted in violence, and it was a call to violence, and and the next day that violence happened. And there's similar cases like in Sri Lanka where there, were, there was ethnic cleansing mm -hmm. um, and that took, and, and, and there, was a direct, uh, there was a direct correlation between when Facebook and Twitter posts were, were posted and murders happened and bombings happened. Um, question is, should you stop those from happening? Should you, because this is what happened in Sri Lanka is, is, is the government clamped down on Facebook and, and, and banned Facebook for those days right. in order to alleviate well, 
So I would say, you know, America does have in its constitution, um, you know, you are allowed to declare martial law. There are war powers that can go into effect. I think that uh, most, you know, there, and, and some of it's very vague, you know, sometimes the president can just assert executive authority and do stuff. And it's even under Trump, it's never in our history been uh, abused in a way that's left lasting damage to the democratic order. Although Abraham Lincoln uh, sometimes probably went beyond the powers that he constitutionally had during our wartime then. Um, but, you know, yeah, I could see that if there's tweets saying, okay, here's where we're going next, or here's where to loot. Yeah, you're giving me really strong cases. Again, um, America has, you know, we have a lot of problems, obviously. Um, and, you know, we have our own history of systematic racism and exclusion and, um, and all sorts of structural inequalities that we can't seem to root out despite our extraordinarily lavish wealth. Um, but... Uh, kind of free speech inspired, or, you know, provoked violence, violence provoked by exercises of free speech is pretty far down on the list. I mean, there are definitely lots of cases where it's quite obvious, right? Someone says, let's go lynch this person and they get a lynch mob together and they go lynch them. Criminal, murderous, um, needs to be punished from in, in large swaths of America geographically and throughout history, wasn't punished, you know, inexcusable, right? Um, but when we look at sort of you know, vague kind of calls to uprising, you know, we're a country that um, has been spared that in a way that Sri Lanka hasn't for the most part. So I hear you. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not an absolutist absolutist, <laughs> but yeah, that's what I was trying to get at. Is it an absolutism about free speech? Yeah. I mean, right. Nobody's again, nobody's an absolutist absolutist, right? If you're not murdering person, the person, but you're sitting there offering directions of like, which, <laughs> which cuts to make with your machete and your, your lackey is doing it. All you did with speech is not a good excuse, right? So no one is an absolute. But to me, the connection between your speech and the specific crime committed would have to be pretty great. Um, but again, you know, our country, it's, this, this is a bargain that we've struck that has, I mean, to some extent, I'm, a, I'm quite conservative in some ways in that I think that, you know, traditions often have more wisdom for their particular time and place than many on the left want to give them credit for. England has all sorts of rules about prior restraint of what their newspapers can print. Um, and they can invoke that restraint to forbid true stories from running if they defame certain people. And we have nothing like that. It's very hard to get prior restraint on any, any publication. You can sue if it's wrong after it was published, but to stop publication on something, you, read a, you need a real national security Reason And even then you might lose, as the federal government did when they tried to stop the publication of the Pentagon Papers in 1972 or 73. So, um, you know, we definitely have a, a bias toward more speech rather than less. Um, but, you know, I think and I think that's but the cases we're talking about right now with the social pressure, I want my side to be the side of less social pressure about what you can and can't say. I want us to be the freer side, even though that comes with some unpleasantness. Because I think that progressivism is about freedom, right? It's, it's ultimately, you know, the march over a thousand years of escaping out from under the feudal lords and the commissars trying to tell us who we, who we have to be. So I think you draw this really important distinction between the incitement to harm and harm itself. 
In other words, if you have people baying for blood in a situation where there's a strong likelihood that that violence will actually occur, that seems like a good reason to sort of halt the speech. Um, now, again, as you say, you, you want some pretty strong causal connections there. You want to make sure it's not just an abstract, like, let's overthrow the government sort of statement that's, you know, said by uh, some rock band. You know, you kind of want it to be quite targeted and it's going to happen imminently. Um, I wonder about other cases. So let's say you have um, content that was made through some sinister manner. So let's say you've got beheading videos. Um, right. That, Which that, don't exist, you know. You know that's an urban legend. Beheading videos. The snuff videos. I mean, there's actual beheadings like Daniel Pearl, but the idea that there was videos circulating on the web of nameless people being beheaded and then the video circulated for the kind of sadistic, kinky pleasure of certain people, there's no evidence of one ever actually existing. It's a good thought experiment, but I just wanted to point that out. Yes. Yeah, you're right. So you could have these sort of, let's say, simulated snuff porn sort of things, which right. I think there's no actual person who was ever killed. I mean, there's that famous um, movie Cannibal Holocaust where the director was, uh, uh, was arrested because um, it sort of looked like the film he'd actually killed people and it was sort of presented as a documentary film. And then he had to try and track down these nobody actors who sort of, you know, right. all sorts of parts of the world, but he didn't kill them. But right. I mean, you could have these... Um, let's say uh, ISIS videos of people being beheaded. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the questions, of course, you've got a tension between something very horrible, the documentation of, of someone's murder, and also a public interest in knowing that this is happening and being able to want to combat it and knowing that you've got a, an evil force out there. The other kind might be something like genuine child pornography. So mm -hmm. there's the, the harm in the production of it. Um, and you might think that by allowing it sale that you're incentivizing people to, to buy that product, which leads to additional right. harm to children. Um, and there's kind of been an interesting controversy at the moment with uh, Netflix's film uh, Cuties, which, you know, has... French movie, right? Yeah, it's a French film, 11-year-old yeah. uh, girls sort of um, right. part of a dance troupe, and the, the dancing is quite sexually salacious, let's say, but they're not nude. I mean, they're clothed, but you kind of have uh, an adult nature to it. Well, and we have a history of actors playing underage, uh, sexualized underage characters. You know, uh, there've been a couple film versions of Lolita and the character of Lolita is, is what, 13, 14. The actors who have played her are older than that. You have um, the, uh, the Lover, uh, based on the Marguerite Dura novel, in which Jane March, the British actress who was 19 or 20, played someone who I think was supposed to be 14 or 15 and having all kinds of sex. Um, yeah, so, um, I mean, I think that, and I'm not a lawyer, uh, you know, as you are. So uh, I, you know, I could mooch off, I could, uh, I could leech off my wife's law degree uh, and pretend some expertise. But, you know, my sense is that there's a pretty strong distinction in American legal history between um, speech as actual words now and, and, and actions, including art. Now, art is protected as free speech. I mean, that was an important constitutional case in America. But there are different kinds of, the, the law around it is different. So the jurisprudence is not the same as the law around speech. So let me give you an example. I think it is legally protected. It, it, certainly someone who wanted to argue for a change in um, age of consent laws would be legally protected in doing so. And I would not be sympathetic to an argument that said it was hate speech or that it was um, hateful towards children in a way that men it should be banned. But the laws being what they are, uh, and they're laws that I support, that means there's certain kind of videos you can't possess or, uh, or own. Be and, and the logic for it is obviously that the harm is pretty, 
It's pretty obvious and pretty imminent. So, um, so I do think that, and, and look, there's also something slippery with art, which is people can do anything and say it's art, right? Like I could fly there right now and behead you and, and film it and say it's a piece of performance art. But that's pretty different from my saying Mark Oppenheimer in South Africa des- deserves the death penalty because of, you know, crimes against uh, good taste in books or whatever. Um, if I actually go and give you the death penalty myself, I can't then say it's art. So let me off the hook. So, you know, we've, we have found our way to these accommodations. Um, and, um, you know, as for things like videos of beheadings and stuff, I don't watch them. I've never seen one. Um, I don't think I need to, to do my job well. And I think it would coarsen me and be bad for me. So it's not my obligation to expose myself to all of reality. Uh, I don't know, but what was the question? <laughs> was there a question about the beheadings? Well, I suppose, I mean, you, I think you again draw an excellent distinction between when you have the exploitation of a real child, um, where you might start to be uncomfortable about that, as opposed to, let's say, a fictitious account. So the written version of Lolita, you might say, well, there's no child that's been harmed in this writing. You know, you just have right. Nabokov's pen. Um, but if you were going to take an actual child and, you know, make a realistic film, you might say, well, I, I draw the line there. You're committing a but crime. In, but in, in a way, like making it about child pornography or um, the sexual exploitation of minors is a kind of debater's trick because you could do the same thing with just murder. I mean, you don't have to pick the sort of most noxious and reviled of all crimes to make this argument. You could say, can we allow another translation of the Iliad? There are all these people who get killed in it for, for no, all these innocent people get slaughtered. You know, can we, can we make another bank heist movie because it's giving an instruction manual to everyone to go out and, and rob a bank? I mean, if we if we saw our if we treated art as you know actionable instruction manuals for how to commit crimes, um, you know goodbye to all of Alfred Hitchcock, goodbye to the Jason Bourne movies, goodbye to the Iliad, goodbye to I mean it's like there would be no end. We we obviously allow for depictions of things in art generally um, that we wouldn't allow people to actually do in life. I should say my take on this, by the way, I've thought a good bit about this. Um, when I thought about the depiction of evil characters in movies with some sympathy sometimes, right? I've been watching a lot of the old 80s teen movies. I hope you got like The Breakfast Club in South Africa. Of course, everyone gets our movies. Why do I even ask? But there's a lot of misogyny in them and a lot of, um, and a lot of uh, there are scenes in them that wouldn't be made today or would be made differently. And these are movies I've watched. I've watched them with my teenage daughter. We still enjoy, enjoy them to a great extent. Um, I think they're problematic in some ways. But one of the things that goes missing from this conversation a lot is sometimes there are things that we find compelling in art precisely because we would never do them in real life, right? That, um, you know, so think of just the extraordinary vogue for people who want to watch like Scandinavian noir crime dramas. Um, You know, these movies and TV series can be quite disturbing, but part of the thrill is it's, it's, an, it's a side of the world that we want no part of in real life, especially those of us who are not in law enforcement, who are not criminals, who God willing have not been victims of these kinds of crimes, rape, abduction, murder. There is something, um, you know, there's, there's a way in which we are processing and sublimating our, you know, dark fairy tales through art, which is why, you know, fairy tales and children's tales often are horrific. And so art has a whole other agenda from, you know, convention speech, political convention speeches. 
Well, Mark, I want to say this has been an uh, absolutely fabulous conversation. Um, I, poor Jason's been caught in a, a Mark Oppenheimer sandwich um, with uh, two free speech zealots. <laughs> There's a porn movie I don't want to be part of. 